just endured the uh, minister's worst uh, nightmare. I uh, came in here at 9 o'clock and sat down and looked at my notes and realized that they were notes from two weeks ago. <laughs> so I had to jump in my car and and uh, rush home and print off another set. I think I've got the right uh, set now. So I really don't know what's been going on. I feel like the fellow that fell out of the third story of his apartment house into some bushes and some people ran over and said, uh, what happened, what happened? He said, uh, I don't know, I just got here myself. <laughs> I want to read to you an aspect of the uh, Christmas story that I would uh, wager you've not thought about before. It's from Second or First Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. It goes like this. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their prince. Uh, this is a story about uh, a cave near the little town of Bethlehem, a cave into which uh, David crept because he had no other uh, place to go. Uh, you know the story. We've been talking about it for the last uh, few weeks. David was uh, secretly anointed king of Israel by Samuel. He served for a time in Saul's court, rose rapidly through the ranks of uh, Saul's army to become one of Israel's greatest warriors. Uh, he was acclaimed by poets and minstrels. They made up songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. But he ran afoul of uh, Saul and his insane jealousy and had to run for his life, ran to Gath, the city-state of uh, one of the city-states of the Philistines, his enemies. And, uh, he was driven out of Gath and finally uh, found himself in the cave of Adullam, that uh, dark uh, refuge that we've talked about for the last uh, two or three Sundays. Uh, Homeless, lonely, forsaken. Nobody knew where he was. No one cared. His uh, fortunes were as dark and as bleak as the inside of that, uh, that cave. That's where he wrote uh, the poem that we'll talk about next week, Psalm 142, in which he said, uh, No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge no one cares for my soul. No uh, phone calls, no cards and letters. Uh, no one cared. David was a, was a lost soul. A king without a crown, without a robe, without a throne, without a kingdom, without subjects. That's David in the cave of Adullam. And then there's that other... Uh, cave a thousand years later near Bethlehem into which that uh, homeless couple crept, Mary and Joseph, because uh, there was no other place to go. The door of the inn had been uh, shut in their faces. 
And so they, uh, they crept into that hole in the ground in which uh, herdsmen drove their animals at night, a place of foul smells and, and waste. And it was there that uh, the Lord Jesus was born, that, that son of David, that greater son of David, of whom the uh, prophet spoke. Now, there's an interesting uh, passage in, in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Um, set in the context of God's concern for his flock, Ezekiel describes the Lord as, as that good shepherd who doesn't look down on his sheep. He looks for them, looks after them, cares for them, heals up, binds up their uh, wounds, does for them what uh, no other shepherd is willing or able to do. And Ezekiel uh, has the, the Lord say this, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. The same word that's used back in 1 Samuel 22. David was their prince, their leader. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live and sleep in the forests in safety. I will bless them in the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. He's referring here to another David. And uh, that couldn't possibly be King David because David lived hundreds of years before Ezekiel wrote. He's talking about our our Lord Jesus, that one shepherd is, is the good shepherd, not, uh, not David resurrected or reincarnated, but uh, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God. A little helpless infant with unfocused eyes and uh, uncontrollable limbs who had to be cuddled and cared for. Do you realize who that was in the cave? God the Spelunker. God in a cave. As Samuel Gandhi said, God contracted to a span. All of God compressed into that, uh, that little infinite. Chesterton describes uh, the birth of Jesus as the infinite made infinitesimally small. It was God. It's the irrefutable proof that God, uh, God cares for us. See, all through the Old Testament, we read about God's efforts to, to draw near, to get next to us, humbling himself and condescending to make himself known. But uh, nothing can match what happened that Christmas day in that cave. Frederick Buchner in a a book called The Hungering Dark put it this way, A child is born in the night among the beasts, the sweet breath and steaming dung of beasts, and nothing is ever the same again. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. For those who believe in God, it means this birth that it means this uh, this 
It means this birth, that God himself is never safe from us. And maybe that's the dark side of Christmas. He comes in such a way that we can always turn him down, as we would crack a baby's skull like an eggshell, or nail him up when he gets too big for that. See, Christmas means the humbling of God. That's one aspect of God's character that we rarely reflect upon. Theologians talk about uh, the so-called communicable attributes of God, his love and his, his integrity and his righteousness and his veracity. He's the God who cannot lie, but they rarely talk about the humility of God, that God made himself of no reputation. Paul says, he who was God didn't think it a thing to be forcibly grasped to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of self and he, he became a little baby. That's what we celebrated at Christmas. And as I said, that's the final irrefutable proof that God, that God cares. That's how much he wants to get next to us. Despite our sin, despite our indifference, he, he draws near to us. And on Christmas Day, he drew near to us in the form of that little, little baby in, in a manger. It's incredible when we think about it, who that baby was. Augustine said, it's incredible, therefore I believe it. He didn't mean that uh, the only way to accept Christ is by some crazy leap of faith. faith. He's saying that it's, incre- it's so incredible, no human being could have thought of it. And only God could have ever, uh, ever thought up that scheme of coming to earth as a, as a little baby, a, a little one born in a, in a cave. So this is a story about two caves. It's also a story about two kings. Saul was the king of Israel when David was in the, in the cave. He too had been anointed by Samuel, and, and he too had a hopeful beginning. He's described in 1 Samuel as head and shoulders above his, his countrymen. He's a great uh, warrior himself, but he squandered it all away. Gave it up through, uh, through his disobedience and was discredited and rejected by by God, and so David was anointed in his place, and Saul, in his insane rage, rage set out to, to kill David. While David was in that cave, Saul and his, and his uh, palace guard were ranging throughout southern Palestine, trying to find David, looking into every hill, nook, and cranny of that uh, place where David was, was hiding, looking in every cave, trying to discover him so they could, so they could kill him. He was driven by his insanity to put, to put David to death. I suppose we could uh, compare Saul to Herod, who was the king, when Jesus found himself in a cave. Uh, he certainly was discredited. Herod was an insane monarch, uh, malignant, malicious, terrible man. I don't know if you're aware of it, aware of it or not, but uh, the slaughter of the innocents, according to the to Jewish tradition, involved the murder of his own son. He was so insanely jealous, so afraid that the king of the Jews would uh, would take his place, that he killed all the children that had been born in Bethlehem. And according to tradition, one of the children was his own that had been born in, in Bethlehem. 
He was a madman. But uh, Herod was just a puppet. He was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He was a quisling. He'd sold out to the what the Jews considered the evil empire. But more importantly, he had, he had sold out to the uh, God of this world. That's the other king that's to be contrasted uh, to Saul. That's uh, the one that our Lord describes as the prince of this world, the God of this world, Satan, the devil. That uh, murderous, malicious personality that's behind all the evil that takes place in, in the world. He was pulling the strings. He was the one that was behind Herod's insane raids to try to destroy the, uh, the king of the world. Herod, or Satan also had a, a hopeful beginning. He was, uh, he's described in the book of Ezekiel as a, as a guardian cherub. Ezekiel, in describing him, says, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. This is God speaking. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Like Saul, the guardian cherub was discredited through uh, disobedience. He forfeited his high position and, and was thrown out of, uh, out of heaven to the earth. He now holds the throne of the earth and he's going about casting his javelin at the king of the earth, doing everything he can to subvert God's plan to bring salvation to the world. See, if Saul had ever killed David, it would have been the end of the messianic line. And uh, throughout history, Satan is behind all the malicious efforts to try to destroy, discredit the king, and, and undo what God is doing to, to bring deliverance and salvation uh, to the world, doing his worst to cripple or, or kill our Lord Jesus. There's a remarkable passage in the book of Revelation. I, uh, people uh, sometimes lose, uh, lose their bearings in, the, in that book. It's difficult to understand, but there are some things about it that are very clear. And, and I see it really as uh, God opening up the scene behind the scene, showing us what's really going on, showing us... Uh, Satan's efforts to undo what God is doing, working in that invisible realm that, that's only uh, accessible through, uh, through faith. And in Revelation 12, there's God's side of the nativity. You have this little baby being born in, Jerusalem, in, in Bethlehem, and no one's even aware of it except a few shepherds and, and uh, sheep masters that were, that were there in the, in the cave with them. But that little baby disrupted the whole universe, created chaos. All hell broke loose. This is God's side of the nativity. Uh, John sees a great and wondrous sign appearing in heaven. A woman, this is Israel, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and the crown of twelve stars on her head. You recognize Joseph's dream and the parallel with uh, his, his vision associated with the nation of Israel. She was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon, that's uh, the one that Jesus described as a liar and a murderer, that personality behind all evil in the world. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. He, he's the prince of this world. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The stars represent the angels. 
The third represents less than half, but a large number of the uh, angels that were drawn out of heaven through Satan's uh, fall. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. See, that's the grand conspiracy that behind all other efforts to try to undo what God is doing stands this uh, red dragon, this uh, terrible, evil, malicious, malignant personality that's out to destroy and to kill and, and to ruin. This is the explanation for Herod's slaughter of, of the innocents. Herod was just a victim. He was victimized by the evil one. And this is the answer to all the other efforts to try to uh, take away from us the, the meaning of Christmas. It's Satan who's the Grinch who has stolen uh, Christmas. You know, you, you can walk all over town today and you see very few indications of what Christmas really means. You see a great deal of what Christmas can provide, but very little of what it means. Where are the creches? Where's the crib? Where's the baby? I see a lot of Santa Claus, but Santa Claus never died for anyone. I, I see a lot of, uh, of uh, mongering of, of material things, but where, where are those symbols that, that let us know what Christmas really represents? See? There's a concerted effort to try to take away from us the significance and the meaning of Christmas, to remove every mention of of Jesus and replace it with the celebration of, of Santa Claus. Uh, that's what uh, C.S. Lewis called the sweet poison of a false infinite, another god to, uh, to worship. Uh, Becky and Chris Riddell were over at the house the other night, and Becky was talking about walking around the mall and listening to the Christmas carols and Occasionally uh, hearing a, a real Christmas carol, one that celebrates Christmas, and, and forgetting that she had come there to buy something. And Chris uh, was just teasing her, and he said, well, you've forgotten the real meaning of Christmas. You're not there to buy something. He was, he was just kidding, of course. And I, I, I can't really blame the merchants and the others that are caught up in this, uh, uh, what C.S. Lewis called the uh, Christmas racket. Because they too are, are just victims of the evil one. But those of us that, that know the Lord Jesus need to remember what this time is all about. That's when God was contracted into a span. That's when he came to demonstrate his love for us. That's when he drew near in that uh, incredible way. Two caves, two kings, two kingdoms. Um... I came across a, a book the other day. It's called A Dictionary of Biblical Tradition in English Literature. It's very English, a very interesting book. It uh, links together references in classical lit literature to uh, biblical references. And I came across this very interesting comment about the cave of Adullam. I wasn't aware of this. In English literature, the term Adullam, which is the cave where David found refuge, which actually means refuge in Hebrew, in English literature, the term adulam is occasionally used as a kind of shorthand for a sanctuary for outcasts. Thus, Thomas Hardy in The Mayor of Casterbridge refers to Mixon Lane in the lowest section of town as the adulam of all the surrounding villages. 
quote, it was the hiding place of those who were in distress and in debt and trouble of every kind. Now, do you remember the passage that I read earlier? David's in the cave of Adullam, and he's all alone. And people are attracted to him from all over Israel. But it was a pretty tough crowd that were attracted to him. They're described as those that are in distress or in debt or discontented. They were in misery and poverty and, and bitterness. He very soon became the center of, of a bunch of people who were full of their own trouble, who were preoccupied with themselves. And they, they found themselves centering around, uh, around David. They're described here as, as distress. The Hebrew word means to be under pressure. They were trapped. They felt uh, inhibited. They were, they were unable to free themselves from Saul's harsh uh, rule. They were in debt. The Hebrew word means to be burdened down with the heavy taxation of Israel and, and uh, the conscription for military service and the harshness of, of Saul's uh, regime. And they were discontented. They were bitter of soul. Literally, they were filled with, with bitterness over, over their past uh, history and, and the experiences that they, had gone, that they had gone through. And this was the crowd that found a new center of life in, in David and began to put off the manners and the customs of, of the old life. And David took them all in, all of them, 400 of them, packed them into the cave. And, and he sang his poems to them and he recited his his, uh, uh, what he was writing, sang his songs, and uh, he befriended them, and, and he taught them. That's what ministry is all about. You know, we, we talk to our interns a lot about the two, what we call the two parameters of ministry, which are simply befriending people and imparting the truth, because that's always the, the secret to any ministry, is just making friends and telling people what God has been telling you, teaching them what he's teaching you. That's what David did, and I'm sure he went through Psalm 142 and the other psalms that he wrote during that bleak period of his life where he discovered that though he was alone, God was present with him, and he began to impart to them all the truth that, had, that God had imparted to him. And, 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 and these rough, rugged renegades from Israel began to change. Their lives began to change. They took on another coloration. They began to think differently about their about their past, and uh, they, they, they began to develop some discipline and some order in their lives. And David welded these 400 into one of the greatest fighting forces the ancient world had, had ever seen. These 400 became the nucleus of the army that conquered that part of uh, the world from, from the Tigris to the river of, of Egypt. They fought the what is what what was described in the Old Testament as the wars of the Lord, holy wars that uh, that God engaged them in for a period of uh, period of time. And this is uh, the allure of of Jesus. Remember who showed up at the uh, cave? A bunch of shepherds. I told you last year when we were talking about those shepherds, they remind me of Hawaii County cowboys. They're like buckaroos, you know, tough. Rugged, outdoor types. Uh, no one ever seriously considered that they were interested in spiritual things. And they were, they were drawn to our Lord Jesus. And they were changed by their contact with him. 
The same thing happens to us. You know, the Lord takes in <clears throat> misfits and moral failures and milk toast, begins to make real men and women out of us. We're drawn to him simply by his uh, attraction. Takes in those that are distressed. Those that are trapped by their marriages. Trapped in, in situations that they just cannot get out of. With uh, harsh, unloving spouses. or Single parents that uh, are trapped into a, a, a poverty and, and very, very difficult circumstances. No way out of that cycle of... Uh, of difficulty. Takes in those that are in debt, those that are burdened down by their sin, weighed down by the, the penalty of, of their past. You know, we, we, we look back on our lives and, and we can just see the debris that we've scattered throughout, throughout life. You know, the people that we've hurt, situations that we've mishandled, and history is unrepeatable. We can't go back and, and relive those experiences as we say we're hung by our history. But not, but not when we come to the Lord. He forgives our past. doesn't make any difference what we've done, how far we've gone, how badly we've played the game. He draws us in. He accepts those that are in distress or in debt or discontented, those that are bitter over their past, who've been wronged by their parents, physically or emotionally or sexually abused, you know, the the hardness of heart that so often comes as a result of the oppression of the past. He relieves all of that. He takes us in just as we are. He says, come to me, all you that, that are heavy laden, burdened down, and uh, I'll give you rest. Uh, same author that I read earlier, Frederick Buckner, marvels at the folly of God to take in Lame brains and nitpickers and holier-than-thous and stuffed shirts and odd ducks and egomaniacs and closet sensualists. That's us. Takes us in, just like we are. Those that are in distress or in debt are discontented and begins to make new people out of us. And then finally I see two affections, two caves, two kings, two kingdoms, and two affections. I just have to tell you, David's men loved him like you wouldn't believe. He removed from them the burden of their, of their past. He gave them a new life. He gave them a new significance, a new cause. And, and they, they, couldn't stop, they couldn't stop loving him. And that affection grew over the years. I stumbled across a passage in First Chronicles, First Chronicles, excuse me, Second Chronicles. Uh, this past, uh, no, I was right the first time. First Chronicles, this past week, uh, that links together the cave of Adullam and Bethlehem. It goes like this: three of the thirty chiefs, that is, three of the uh, these mighty men, the four hundred that gathered to David, who were bitter burdened down, had felt trapped in Saul's kingdom, but had been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Three of the thirty came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. 
David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back. David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of these three mighty men. This is one of my favorite stories about about David. And uh, what it it demonstrates is the desire on the part of these men to satisfy David's cravings. And I thought of that other affection. Our Lord is the one who has relieved us from... The debt of our sin, he paid that price with his blood. He relieved us of our creditors by by meeting with them personally, by taking on principalities and and powers and stripping them of, of their authority over us, who clothes us with his perfect beauty, who allays our fears and, and our sorrows and sets us at rest. And 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 all we can say is, I love you, I love you. There's something wrong with us if, if we can't respond with affection and love to someone who has done that for us, who has, who has set us free from our distress and our debt and our, and our discontented, our discontent. And I thought of that occasion when our Lord uh, was, uh, had built a little fire for the, the disciples after, after his resurrection, and he cooked a small meal for them, and they'd been out fishing, and again, they hadn't caught anything, and the Lord taught them how to catch fish, and and they finally pulled the boat to, to the shore, and, and, and Peter was reluctant to say much to the Lord because he had just come away from that terrible time of denial. And the Lord said to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. In other words, get on with the task. It's all right. The main thing is to love me. Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three questions that parallel the three denials of Peter. In every case, Peter could only respond with that statement, I love you. And it's all the Lord wants from us. What more could he do? I just have to ask you. What more could he do? Came to earth, humbled himself, the greatest humiliation the world has ever seen so that he uh, could draw near to us. And all he wants us to do is to say, I love you, and, and then to satisfy his cravings. And do you know what he craves for? He craves for us. It's what he wants more than anything else in the world. It's why he came. He came to demonstrate his love. And all he asks is our love in return. Christmas is about an exchange of gifts, you know. That's what we do on Christmas. His gift to us is himself. And that's, that's what we give to him. We give ourselves. Paul speaks of uh, the Corinthians, a bunch of demon worshipers and idolaters and uh, fornicators. Very difficult group of people. He says to them, just give yourself first to the Lord. That's all he wants. All he wants is our love. 
Corey Ten Boom said, If Jesus were born a thousand times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. That's the choice we have to make. He has chosen to humiliate himself for us. It's now our choice to respond to him in love. It's all he wants. All he wants you to say is, I love you. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I hope through this week, every time you see a crash, every time you see a crib, you'll remember that's God's way of saying to you, Come closer. Come closer. Let's pray. Father, that we might give ourselves first to you. This is the only gift that uh, has any significance at all um, during this Christmas season. No other gift has any meaning apart from that giving of ourselves. Uh, We realize that uh, Christmas is not just a date on our calendar, but it's a state of mind. It's a way of looking at at you every time we think of you, realizing that you have done everything you can to draw near to us. We could not ask you to do anything more uh, but appear in, in a form in which no one could fear. And uh, we want to thank you for that coming, and we want you to have our hearts. We want to love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind. Thank you for your coming. Amen.